G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Able, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. G'day guys, it's uh, Micah Adams here uh, from the far south coast of Marimbula. Uh, I've had a pretty good career in fishing and fly fishing, but uh, certainly a, a really passionate fly fisherman. Uh, been involved in fishing media for about 25 years, um, been a professional guide, fly fishing guide for 12 years. Uh, and you know, a few people know me from uh, being the host and exec producer of a, a fishing TV program called Adventure Angler TV. So uh, it's been a sort of a fun ride, to be fair, and uh, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Great to have you on, Micah. Thanks for um, dedicating some of your time to jump in here. I know you've been busy with um, taking the kids down the snow and fitting in as much fishing as you can, but I've really been looking forward to this one. I've always kept up with your show in past years and articles that you've written for magazines. So um, I remember I was talking to Dave Bradley on the phone one day and he said, mate, like you'd, you'd struggle to find a fly fisher that's travelled to some of the cool places like Micah. He's just a top notch bloke and he said he'd be a great one to interview and hear some stories. So yeah, really happy to have you on. Well, that's a pretty nice endorsement, Josh, isn't it? Got to, got to talk it up there, Micah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Keep me interested. No, it's, um, yeah, it's been a good ride for sure. Well, we might start with um, earlier on in life, how you got into fly fishing, just so we can give people a bit of a backstory about how you got into the sport and what got you interested in the um, the initial stages. Yeah, well, like probably most of us, you know, the young lads, we I fished with my dad. Um, my dad was a super passionate trout fisherman, uh, less so in the salt, but I grew up in the in the mountains in Victoria, Mount Hoffam and Bright. So, of course, my first fish that I caught was a trout on a on a Celta, of course, um, spinning in the Buckland River um, at, I think, three years of age. So um, I used to go most evenings with Dad after dinner. We'd go for a spin on the, down the river. Uh, and that, So that's where fishing essentially started for me. Dad always had a fly rod, being a trout fisherman. Uh, it was always sort of kept safely in the shed and didn't really get used that often. So Dad wasn't the, the keenest fly fisherman. I think it was almost a... Uh, sort of a skill that was maybe not as productive for him he was a better lure fisherman but I would see this fly rod sitting on the shelf and in fact there was two there was this really old shitty fly rod made of fiberglass and uh, I just can't remember what the reel was but it was hideous and then he had this really nice rod I think it was a sage back at the time really old sage custom built thing Uh, and of course I wasn't allowed to touch that but I was allowed to grab this this old 
fiberglass piece of spaghetti. And at around about nine or ten, uh, when Dad would be away, I'd pick up this rod and I'd try and teach myself to cast in the in the driveway. Um, and I had this idea. I hadn't seen any fly fishing, but I had this idea that the idea was that you had to just dap the fly on the water, and the fish had that at that moment had to get it. So that's that's how I was learning or teaching myself to cast a fly. So as you can imagine, it led to a pretty average casting style at the early stages. But um, I started getting a few tips from a few different people and and became a half-decent caster. Uh, so, yeah, I started fly fishing at 10, essentially, and it I was pretty much hooked on fishing. I was obsessed, in fact, with fishing. Um, some kids wanted to play AFL. I just wanted to be a fisherman. Um, so that was, that was really me, and I remember... I remember my mum hiring the Malcolm Florence VHS videos so many times from the local video store that they eventually gave them to her. So I hired this set that many times. It was They just said, look, you've, you've earned these. You just take them home to that boy. So I was pretty passionate about my saltwater fishing, although I didn't get to do a lot of it. And at, uh, I think it was 12, I moved to a little coastal town, south coast of Australia called Marimbula, which I still live today. Um, and it's a beautiful town, a little holiday destination and unbelievably good fishing, really diverse as well. So that's when the saltwater scene sort of started kicking in for me. And of course, like any young kid, I wanted to catch marlin, um, you know, and, and less so brim and flathead, but every, every young kid wants to catch a marlin. So, yeah, I became obsessed with every kind of fishing um, and, and still loved my trout. But uh, that was certainly the early days of, of my fishing career. And it is um, a story that you hear quite often. It's usually like dad gets you into it or an uncle or a grandparent and that sort of thing. And it is like, it is great to have that time on the water with those people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I fished with my dad every single week. I ended up working with him as well. He was the best mate, uh, still is. So yeah, we would fish uh, most, uh, probably two or three times a week together. And just about every weekend we'd be, we'd be going up the snowy mountains fishing for trout. And of course, that's where I became really quite obsessed with fly fishing. And then I would bring it back to, you know, when I was, I had a little tinny, of course, and weekends or school holidays, dad would launch me into one of the local rivers or lakes and I'd, sp- I'd spend the day in my tinny with one of my mates. And yeah, I'd be trying to catch brim or flathead on fly or salmon or tailor or something. And um, and also lived, you know, I grew up living just above Chura Headland, which was a really good, significant game fishing, sort of land-based game spot. Uh, and had a fantastic run of um, sort of salmon and bonito and to a lesser degree kingfish and things like that. So I like throughout high school, I would ride my mountain bike down to that headland with my, I think back then it was a, would have been an 8.9 mega, a G Loomis 8.9 mega, I would have thought, uh, which was the saltwater fly rod back in the day. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd be spending my afternoons catching salmon and bonito on fly off the rocks. So I remember at one point before, because I, I had this tinny, it was a 13-foot tinny and it had a 20-horsepower mariner on the back, uh, and I put a marlin in that tinny, uh, and I caught over 300 tuna on fly out of that tinny, and it was before I got my L-plates, my driver's license. That's a pretty so, impressive start to saltwater fly. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. Um, so I was, I was very keen. I was an obsessed young kid. And from high school, when did you um, start guiding? Like, was it pretty much straight after school or did you have another job before you got into guiding? Or So throughout the last couple of years that I was at school, I had, a, I had my own page in the newspaper 
Um, so the local newspaper, I had a full page every week that was my, my own fishing column, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, they offered me a cadetship as a journalist for when I left school. Um, and my dad offered me an apprenticeship as a builder, which I took. So I became a builder straight up, uh, but already at that stage, I was writing for a lot of the national magazines. So I think I was writing for about six of the better national magazines at the time. Um, and that was from the age of 15. So I think at the time I was probably the youngest to get published in that regard. Um, so I felt like the lo- writing for the local newspaper wasn't going to help me too much. Uh, I, I kind of had bigger bigger things to do, I thought, and getting a trade behind me was, a, you know, so I was told a pretty good idea and uh, Dad certainly wasn't wrong. It, it did help me later in life. So uh, I did that. And then at the age of 18, I brought another boat, which I, I got set into survey. And that's when I started my guiding career. So bought a new four-wheel drive, well, a new four-wheel drive, uh, bought a new boat, I'll get a loan for a boat, and started uh, on a fly guided fishing out of Rimbula. So yeah, I, I did that from the age of 18 to 30. Yeah, okay. And so were you mainly chasing like black brim and flathead tailor and that sort of thing or...? Yeah, mostly uh, mostly estuary stuff. Yes, which would be brim, estuary perch, bass, flatties, that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly caught a lot of brim and estuary perch on fly, which was cool. Uh, and did some stuff in the bays as well for kingfish, salmon, bonito, uh, things like that too. But it was largely um, largely estuary, and probably uh, kind of made a bit more of a name in doing a lot of wilderness campout safaris. Is is sort of the direction I took. And it wasn't a deliberate direction. It was just sort of morphed into that. Um, I had a lot of really cool, untouched little billabongs and sort of lagoons and estuaries and things along scattered along the coast. And I would go and fish these on a multi-day kind of thing with a couple of clients. And, and I learnt to pack in a light space or a tight space um, for, you know, three to sort of seven-day trips which was a bit of a challenge with food and ice and things like that as well. Um, And I would do these really cool wilderness packages. So, and that, of course, the fishing was fantastic. So that's where I feel like uh, that sort of guided fishing name sort of really tended to do quite well. Yeah, okay. And I think that's for for down somewhere in New South Wales like that, where you're fairly close to Sydney and even Melbourne and that sort of thing. It'd be great for people that just want to get away from city life and actually get back into nature and do a bit of camping and fishing and makes it a whole experience instead of just a charter. Yeah, it was pretty popular. I mean, it was. I didn't see it as hard work back then. I saw it as a really cool thing to do. But, you know, looking back now, you were with that client for 24 hours a day and you were stuck in a tent as well. So I suppose it was uh, a bit of a, a, learn, a steep learning curve for me. You know, you had to catch fish during the day. And, and then, you know, guys would need a break, so you kind of look for other different things, whether it might be a short little bush walk or picking oysters off the rocks. You know, you just find things to do, basically. Catch a few salmon spinning off the beach, stuff like that. Maybe dive for abalone. We tended to do a bit of that. Yeah, okay. That would have been awesome. Like, um, for a lot of people, it's just usually like a half-day charter, a full-day charter, whereas that you're literally getting everything. You're probably having to cook tea from over the fire and um, roll the swag or the pack a tent up and that sort of thing. But um, I could imagine back then there probably weren't too many people offering those packages either, so it's probably a bit before its time. It was, to be honest. Like, I remember a famous tour was, um, I think his name was uh, Rob Lockwood, was doing those 
canoeing trips down the Clarence uh, and a few of those rivers catching eastern cod and cod and bass and things. And those trips are really famous. Um, and, yeah, I think my, my trips were starting to get pretty well known. I had a, a fair bit to do with the Complete Angler group of guys, particularly um, Jimmy and, and a lot of his sort of key staff members were you know, mates of mine. And in the end, what they were doing was um, testing a lot of their new products because Mayfly were doing uh, – well, that was their d- distribution at the time, but they were bringing in a lot of their conventional fishing, like nitro rods and some soft plastics and – they, a lot of the early testing of that product was with me on those trips. Um, and then also if they had a good staff member somewhere that was excelling in one of their shops because they had about 20 shops around the country, uh, they'd send them on a weekend free with me. So um, I had a pretty good pretty good uh, sort of arrangement running really with the Complete Angler and you know, I, still, I still like those guys. Let's just talk a bit about chasing estuary perch on flight, something I've never done before. I reckon they're uh, they're quite a complex little creature. The perch they're complex for two reasons. Uh, they're not quite as moody as brim. Brim are really moody, particularly black brim, um, but they can be quite moody. They can completely shut down, uh, more so than bass. Um, and then the other thing that makes them a bit complex is they just don't live everywhere. So even in, in an area or a region where they are known to be quite prolific, they don't live spread throughout the whole estuary system they live in pockets and that's kind of the i suppose mystique about estuary perch is they're not a fish like a brim that you can just find them throughout the whole system and all all around the coast of australia they are quite sort of reclusive and that's something i quite like as well because there was especially back then there wasn't a lot known or talked about with estuary perch so i guess when i started writing a few articles about perch you know there wasn't there wasn't a lot else that had been written so um, that for me, they were, they were my favourite fish, to be honest, that I, that I guided for and caught. Um, and like I say, part of that was because of that sort of secretness or elusiveness around the estuary perch. Are there certain parts of the river that the um, estuary perch prefer and certain types of structure? They'll definitely be out of the current. And the main that's got more to do with um, salinity than anything. So if you had a heavy tidal m- movement and, and lots of, lots of current, you're going to have quite marine or saline water. So perch won't like that. Um, so you will find them in the back back eddies and you will find them in the deeper sections where there will be brackish pockets throughout that water column. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're a complex fish, to be fair, uh, in terms of how where they choose to live. Um, there was one study done uh, by a guy who's not with us anymore, Chris Walsh from New South Wales Fisheries, and when he, when he did that study... Um, I did a lot of the research for or with him and for him on perch and we got some access into some remote places with, with the key from national parks and um, those were obviously places that I'd done plenty of fishing uh, with clients. But, um, yeah, we got to got to see a bit more technical data, I guess, about the estuary perch, which was cool. And the black brim, they would have been quite a fickle one. Like you'd have to tape like your leaders right down and presentation would have to be pretty Mickey Mouse. Yeah, and to be fair... I'm a far better black brim fisherman now than I would have been when I was 18. Uh, so, you know, back back at 18, we fished eight-pound leader. Like, that was it. You know, eight-pound was the tippet class. Um, any lower than that, and you thought you were mad. But these days, when I'm brim fishing, um, you know, I'll, I'll fish three-pound all the way through quite a lot. I'll go down to two-pound. Four is pretty much as heavy as I get. So, you know, 
how many would we have caught fishing four pound tippet or three pound tippet back then on fly <laughs> instead of the eight? And I guess these days too, like over time, um, the technology with gears got better. You probably learnt more knots over the time, which then enhanced that as well. So there, there would have been plenty that you learnt along the road that would have helped. Like hindsight's always a great thing. <laughs> yeah, I got this sort of theory. You know, people say, "Oh, is fishing any better or any worse?" And I said. I, I maintain that, and this is more of a general observation, I maintain that uh, the catch has remained about the same. I reckon that fisheries have declined uh, and fish are getting smarter. However, we as anglers and our, our um, tackle and, and equipment that we've got has gone through the roof. So whilst one is declining, the other is increasing. And to be fair, I reckon catch remains the same. Yeah, I guess you look at sounder technology for people fishing the estuaries and like even up here in the impoundments for Barramundi and that sort of thing, like the fish can't really hide anymore when you've got things like live scope and side scan and that sort of thing. Rods are getting better, lines are getting better. Um, there's more and more flies on the market that people are tying some pretty impressive stuff. And Yeah, yeah, yeah it's making it, um, it's making it. well, a lot of people say easy for the angler, but like, like I say, there's, the fish are also getting smarter. So I think it's a level playing field. Around your area too, um, you'd have a pretty impressive flathead fishery as well for like bigger duskies and that sort of thing? Yeah, probably, I, I guess, us down here and into sort of, uh, you know, northeast Gippsland or um, east Gippsland would be probably the best in Australia. Maybe, you know, you know, jump and pin area of the Gold Coast was always pretty highly regarded too. Um, and I'm seeing a fair bit in that St George Basin, which are stocked fish. Um, so it's become a really good fishery as well for trophy fish, but historically probably jump and pin in, in Queensland. And then what I have down here, Malakuta, Gippsland lakes is just the best flathead fishing. Um, I've seen it come and go, obviously soft plastics were pretty destructive to flathead because it just, everything works in their favor, you know, for catching flatties. Um, so the introduction of, of plastics, uh, I mean, it, it's it's probably had a bit of a decline on flathead numbers in some ways, but you, when I was guiding, you would certainly see seasons, and you could use Malakuta as a as a really good example of this. You'd, you'd have seasons where there's just flathead everywhere for a year or two or, or three, and then there was years where there just weren't many around, and it wasn't angling pressure was intense the year before, and there was suddenly no flathead. It was definitely a seasonal thing, um, but yeah, in terms of big ones, if I was going looking for a big flathead for a client. You know, I would be. I, I always headed down south to Cooter or down into the more remote Gippsland estuaries. And yeah, I don't know how many ten pound plus fish I caught from my clients. I'd say it was quite a lot. Um, in terms of eight pound fish, which are probably considered a trophy anyway, I mean it would be in the hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands. Um, so yeah, we certainly saw a lot of big flathead. Funny story, the best. Bit like I, we caught some good ones, sort of fourteen pound and fifteen pound and stuff like that. Uh, but one time I did this episode for Adventure Angler, and it was chasing big flathead, uh, not because I wanted to. I'm not really a big fan of flatties, but I knew that uh, it was something that an audience would want to see. Um, so I did this episode down at Malakuta, and the idea was to get a ten pound flatty. And f- third f- fish of the uh, of the morning, I think the first fish was a three pound brim targeting flatties so it was a good bycatch and then i got one about 70 centimeters which was a nice one and then literally 10 minutes later i've hooked this fish and i just looked over to the cameraman and said yeah this is our fish and 
just got this one roll of it and went, yeah, I think this is this is the one. So we actually uh, probably given away a few secrets, but we played that up in our commentary to be the last fish of the episode. So referring to all these other flattered, which we were yet to catch. So, um, but it, it may, that's how an episode should roll. You know, you should have the best fish at the end and and working towards that final goal. So anyway, we get this fish on board, and it was from memory. I think it was ninety eight centimeters and eighteen pound. So it it was a proper one. <laughs> Bloody hell! <laughs> Would have had a head on it like a council shovel. Yeah, mate, it was. It was it was a wicked fish. So. Um, and no, I never cracked one over a meter. I know that it has happened, and you know, I know that there's also been hundreds that have been said to be a meter without being weighed, uh, sorry, measured. But um, I never ever measured one over a meter. So, if yeah, that'll give... pretty special fish. Like I, I think they're pretty far, few and far between. Yeah, I reckon so too. And I reckon uh, down south they're shorter and fatter, and 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 in other areas they can be long and lean, but. Um, yeah, it gives you some idea of, you know, you hear about meter flatheads all the time from, you know, across the commentary, but you talk to a lot of guys that have caught a lot of big flatheads, they haven't measured too many. Yeah, it's sort of like a 60 centimetre plus bass. You hear plenty of people going, oh, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, yeah. and you just wait for the photos and then they, nev- they, they never, never come. They never it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the old elastic measuring tape. Yeah, right? yeah, or I had him on the Yeski and that was a metre. It's like, oh, yeah, righto. How did you first decide that you wanted to start your own TV series or was it you had um, brands approach you because of your guiding? Or? So uh, it was a bit of a, a perfect evolution, I suppose. I'd been writing um, for a lot of years and got to the point of writing where I was probably writing more articles than anyone at the time in Australia. I was doing, in terms of fishing media, I was doing around about 55 to 60 articles and columns a year and you know getting half a dozen cover shots and um, I was doing quite well out of writing. Uh, just finished writing a book, um, and now then I started doing DVDs. I was hosting these DVDs for fishing sponsors, uh, largely the EJ Todd brand, uh, which back in the time was G Loomis rods and um, you know a whole range of Japanese brim lures or um, sort of technical lures. Um, so started started doing hosting these little DVDs basically, and kind of. It was going okay. Like people, was, you know, thought I wasn't too big a goose, I suppose, in front of the camera. Uh, so that was that was a starting point. Uh, and then one of the one of the sh- uh, DVDs I did was with a new cameraman because my my mate that was doing it for me had to pull out. So I I found this guy. Believe it or not, his name was his last last name was the same as mine. We were the same age, and we we're almost like we were brothers. And 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 uh, we got along really really well, um, and he was a, a Channel Ten cameraman from Sydney, and we went and did this trip up to uh, Melville Island in the Territory, and on the plane out, I said to him that I had this idea for a TV series that was really really good that I thought, and I, I wasn't particularly fond of any of the fishing TV that I was currently watching, to be fair, and I thought, well, it's easier to say it's shit, but it's one thing to go and prove you know, that you can do a better job. So, um, yeah, I, I basically said to him, well, you, you tell me if I'm any good at it or not and, uh, and if, if I'm dreaming or if, you know, what, you, what your thoughts are. And then about half an hour into our first shoot day, he said, mate, I think, I think you should be doing this. And 
So we basically formed a team. Obviously, he was cameraman and, and, and editing, and, and I did all of the executive well, production kind of work. So uh, I wrote down uh, scripts or script ideas for, I think, three seasons, and we filmed a short pilot, uh, plus showed some of the DVDs that I'd previously done, and we sent them to most of the networks in Australia. And we had Fox Sports and Channel 10 pick us up. So back in the time, we had to choose. So we chose Fox Sports, and and believe it or not, they actually paid us for the show, which uh, these days is absurd. And even at that time was a little bit absurd as well because we're starting to get into an era in Australian fishing TV, which around the world is is people find amazing, that uh, content providers or uh, other fishing shows we're actually paying for their time slot. And this this is now even worse in this country. And it, it started by kind of a uh, bit of a competition between a couple of current uh, uh, fishing show guys. And it led to this, this situation being become the norm in Australian TV, which is really sad. So at the time, Fox Sports, uh, they didn't pay us a lot, but they paid us an amount of money and... That, together with getting sponsorship revenue, was how I produced the first season of Adventure Angler. Um, And then after that, we went to Channel 10 and to Fox Sports. We got aired on both. Um, And then eventually I did a deal with, I moved to Channel 7 and 7 Mate, which I was getting really good time slots there and was getting a lot of stuff on the back of the footy or the next morning from the footy. So People were watching the footy last night and turned the TV off and then turned it back on to me. And they were playing me at, like, or Channel 10, for example, were playing me at like 4 and 4.30 every single afternoon of the week, you know. So I was getting around about 250 250 episode plays a year. So I was getting really good mileage out of the show. So, yeah, that's how it all started. It's crazy to think that like you had to, well, a lot of people had to pay to get their airtime. Like it would price a lot of people out of the game. Um, like there might be some people out there that would make a phenomenal host and have some really great ideas, but if they can't afford to do it, then it's just not never going to get off the ground. Well, for my 10 years or whatever it was on Fish and TV, I never once paid. Um, so I, I maintained that my show was good enough and that my audience numbers were high, and they were, you know, so like they were some of the highest at the time and that was you know evident by the amount of replays they kept giving me so I kind of held my held my ground on that one but it's really sad and then I I see a lot of stuff on Facebook today of people uh, ripping shit out of current you know Australian fishing shows and to be fair I agree with nearly all of it um, it's atrocious however you know they they have no option but to become advertorials because of the the landscape that is now Australian fishing TV from the networks. So, you know, it's it's a tough market to be honest. I guess you were allowed like you're able to let your ratings do the talking for you. So um, but then these days it would be so competitive with all the different brands out there and all the different channels. So it is a bit of a shame where you do flick the TV on and after five minutes you just want to yeah, change channels. Yeah, it's hot, it's embarrassing to watch, I feel. 
and I guess YouTube these days too, there's a lot of free content out there. Like it's hard to compete when people are happy to go out there, use their own gear and buy a new boat and that sort of thing. Um, and they don't expect a whole lot. Of effort. They might get a half a dozen packets of plastics and a rod or whatever. And it's hard to compete with that when people are happy to go out and do it off their own bat really. So. 100%. It's such a it's such a weird market. It's a weird time. Um, probably, you know, opening up a little bit on how I see this current uh insta-famous landscape that we live in and back when I started you had to be endorsed by a magazine editor to get any airtime you know you had to submit articles I mean I submitted several articles that were all knocked back at the age of 15 before I got one to be published some editors just you know threw me to the corner and said no that's shit some guys said that's not quite what we want however we need you to work on this this and this and they saw potential so I certainly never forgot who those guys were. Um, but ultimately, someone else from a professional background had to make the call if your product, your stuff was good enough. Today, anyone can put up their own shit on Facebook or YouTube or Insta. It's, and it's, it's quite sad, to be fair. So not only is it sad that the quality has gone down in a lot of ways, but also... You're right, guys that are trying to take it serious and make a living out of it can no longer really do so because you've got guys that are also just wanting their one five minutes of fame and will work for two or three years slowly at night time putting this one video together and it's really, really good. But is it sustainable to make series after series, year after year? No, because they've spent the last two years socially doing it and part-time and it's not it's not really going to lead to a full-time gig, but it's still out there and it's still something that's worth watching and it's most of the time really, really good. So it's a, it's a really strange environment, I reckon. Um, I, when I stopped doing Adventure Angler, it was, it was my decision. I, I had ongoing contracts with Channel 7 and I, you know that whole time throughout that show and still today, I have an international distributor and my show went to around about 25 countries around the world. And it's still getting aired in those countries now. So, you know, I, I had a good gig running. Um, I just needed a change. So, you know, I was already contracted for more seasons. I just had to pull the pin on it for various reasons, family, uh, work, all sorts of all sorts of things, really. Um, but it was it was my time to to pull. You know, at the time I said I was taking a year off, but that was five years ago. So. <laughs> I guess it's probably good to leave on a um, note when you're still enthusiastic about fishing and that sort of thing instead of just burning yourself out and then just crumbling down in a heap and going, oh, I probably should have pulled a pin a season ago. So yeah. it probably was a, a good call, I guess, if you had to um, prioritise a few other things in life and move on from there. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I miss it. Don't don't worry about that. Like, I love fishing. It's my, it is my you know most favourite thing to be doing. Um and I really enjoy filming. I feel like I was made for it and it's something that I thrived on. Um, it, it wasn't a job for me at all. I, I just absolutely loved it. And, you know, that whole experience for those 10 years, we, we filmed in, I think, 20-odd countries uh, and some really wild, cool destinations, um, of course, all the way across Australia. So it was a wicked ride, to be fair, um, and... At the time, I just needed a break, but I never envisaged it was it was finishing. I, I still don't completely feel that 
I have finished. I feel like there is some sort of comeback in me somewhere, but I'm just not sure that TV is where it's at. Yeah, I think digital media these days, there's probably other platforms that you could be using to um, get your story out there instead. Yeah, yeah I agree. And you've, uh, you've certainly met some interesting people and characters over the over the time frame of the show, like Rene Vaz, who owns Manic Tackle Project in New Zealand, he um, he supports the podcast, and we deal with him in the shop there. They they stock plenty of um, great products from Sims through to Scott and Abel and that sort of thing. How did you first meet Rene and start fishing with him? So I met Rene uh, over in Wanaka in New Zealand. It was I was eighteen, and and I think he was eighteen or nineteen. We're, we're a very similar age, and I just got my very first overseas. Uh, fishing writing assignment for modern fishing and I went to New Zealand to do a couple of articles um, and I was with a guide called Gerald Telford who had a had a lodge guiding business out of Wanaka there had a great four or five days caught heaps my first trip to New Zealand certainly learnt lots and on the last night of that he was hosting the uh, New Zealand fly fishing championship or it was like the meet and greet and there was this young Kiwi guy there uh, called Renee, and we just hit it off with the same age amongst a whole heap of 50 and 60-year-olds. And, uh, you know, we talked the same talk and we just got along. We both liked to cast long. He could definitely cast longer than me um, and he's a far better caster than me. But um, we, we just kept in contact. And from that point on, and I, I think that was pretty sure that would have been pre-emails maybe. Or maybe not. Anyway, it was certainly around that time. Um, and we would fish together every year. So we'd do a, I'd do a trip with him over to New Zealand and he'd do a trip with me to Australia. So we'd, we'd basically catch up twice a year. Um, and, you know, I ended up taking the photos at his wedding for him. So but we are good mates. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I, I just don't know of a better or more talented fisherman than Renee, the guy fishes once a year and says he's rusty and it just makes fly fly fishing look so easy. I guess too, it's it's great that we've got New Zealand on our doorstep because it's a world-class trout fishery, but then also for the Kiwis, like you've got Australia on their doorstep. So to be able to, um, yeah, just sort of hop over there, jump across the ditch there once a year or whatever and him come across here, you got the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah it was pretty exciting. You know, we were only sort of 19, 20-year-olds as well, so... There was a lot of exciting opportunities for us at that age. A lot of things we hadn't done. Um, you know, I did a lot of that Tongariro fishing with him because he was sort of from, or he grew up in Hamilton, just below Auckland there. And um, but we did lots of we did lots of trips together, obviously. And and uh, yeah, it was a an awesome time. We we certainly loved talking, the talk as well. Renee and I we were very very tech conscious in in fly fishing, so. We could, we could reel off all the stats, all the specs of every single product. We just knew them back to front. And then he went and worked for a, a rod manufacturing company over there, Composite Developments, and he, because he, he's such a smart guy, Renee, he just took them to another level too and developed uh, rod tapers and graphite material that was super, really, and um, really transformed their company. And then, of course, he eventually went and did his own thing with Manic and he's just nailed it as we all thought he would. Yeah, they're definitely kicking a lot of goals in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, so. he's a smart guy. And so you would have got to experience some pretty impressive um, backcountry fishing as well, like sort of helicoptering. And yeah, out. and that was, you know, probably, I mean, I got to do a lot of good helicopter fishing uh, pre the show. 
I used to do a lot of helicopter fishing with a, a famous Cairns Marlin captain called Dennis Brazaka or Dennis Wallace Brazaka. Um, and I, I met him when I was 18 up on the Barrier Reef. I was, I was uh, on a few different boats and I, I met him one night and we just got along and I was going to go and do a season crewing with him the next season, but he retired, which he thought he might. So I, I could have gone elsewhere, but I, I kind of wanted to do it with him. Um, so I never ended up doing that season of, of heavy tackle deckhand work. Uh, but I kept in contact with Brazak and did heaps and heaps of, of Halley fishing with him. Pretty much Halley fished all, all across Cape York with Brazaka uh, on various different trips. Um, and then, of course, yeah, New, New Zealand done lots there and lots in a lot of different countries. But I think the show was where the Halley fishing stuff really opened up because suddenly we had budget, you know. When you're 20, you can't afford helicopters to go for a private fish. But when you've when you've got to do something to create a great show and it gives you access to a cool destination, then if you've got the budget, you're doing it. And I guess that's the cool thing with New Zealand. Like you can do it on a budget. Like you can fly over there, hire a car. You can either go get yourself a tent and just camp along the way or you can get cheap accommodation. Or if you want to do the other end of the scale, you can fish some top-notch lodges over there or you can jump in a helicopter and go to somewhere where there's very, very little traffic. Yeah, I, with... With the Adventure Angler series, I uh, I did view that as the same as a magazine editor needs to view the contents of each issue, that it had to have diversity. And so on that, I was conscious that I wasn't always just fly fishing, even though that's what I really wanted to do for 12, 12 um, episodes per season. I did have to do plenty of conventional fishing, but not only that, it had to be some bread and butter stuff, and it also had to be the exotic, you know, your tarpon, bonefish, permit, trout, but... One of the episodes that Renee and I did, which was really, really popular, was a Trout Bum Diaries in, in New Zealand. And we, we got a, a camper, a motor camper, a motorhome, and, and we did four, yep. four nights or something like that out of Queenstown down to the south, Southland area. Um, and it was a fantastic episode. Clearly, we both could fish and we had lots of contacts and knew the area. So we already had an upper hand. But what we did do was showcase that you can fly over, hire yourself a camper and, you know, bring your five or six weight and a pair of waders and you can have amazing fishing. So uh, that was a really cool episode, I thought. I think it was pretty well received. Yeah. I remember seeing that one. Um, usually we've got YouTube playing in the shop there and I think a snippet of that came up the other week. Um, and, yeah, it's it's one of those things that so many Aussies can do, just hire a camper or a car and just take a few mates or you can even do it solo if you like you're not really worried about anything like over here like snakes and all that sort of thing and you can just make your own adventure yeah yeah that was really really good and of course renee cooked breakfast every time so every morning so that was nice too (laughs) put his little apron on oh he loved it yeah he loved the apron (laughs) and um you guys both did alaska together too didn't you for the show yeah that was a really cool trip i mean to this day probably one of my um favorite fishing experiences i guess um, I, I, I'd never, neither of us had been to Alaska at that time. Um, I believe I caught all five species on the fly in that week, which is kind of hard to do because they don't all run at the same time. Those five salmon species, you know, you generally get a couple of them that are really in full flight and then one that's just non-existent and then a couple that are tapering off. So, uh, yeah, we managed to jag, uh, all five, which was really cool, but certainly the highlight of that week was we we had a couple of days with seaplanes uh, and then other days you'd take like a big sort of jet powered boat out of the lodge 
up the bigger river that you were based on. Uh, that, and that was usually pretty good fishing. But this, this one day we got in this seaplane, uh, flew pretty much across the Alaskan wilderness. It was just lakes everywhere and so rugged and remote. And we landed at the far side of this huge lake that had this towering mountain on the, on the other side of it where we landed up against it. And on the other side of that was the ocean. Anyway, we pulled in and there was this tiny little stream. We got out and I'd, I'd taken a six-pack of Guinness cans. I'm not really a Guinness drinker, but it, it just seemed the right thing to do. And I put them in like a little mesh keeper net and I hit them at the mouth of this river just under a rock. Anyway, none of us had seen a bear, like a, a proper grizzly bear. Well, literally, as we got out of the, of the seaplane, because we pulled up like 50 metres from this little this little creek mouth, um, there was 1,000-pound grizzlies everywhere just feasting on salmon and chasing them and jumping in and doing all the classic bear moves that they do. And my cameraman at the time was just frothing, going, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And me and Renee were just looking at each other going, this is, this is amazing. And then we started fishing and we literally caught the shit out of them. Like we... We just caught so many fish, you know. Uh, they were mostly reds or sockeye salmon, um, but we caught so many little um, graylings and dolly vardens and, and rainbow trout. It was such a good episode. Um, and then at the end of the day, we just we're all just on a high, and then you can hear this seaplane coming back in, pulls up, lands at the at the mouth of the creek. I grabbed these this six pack of Guinness, and I remember sitting in the front with the with the pilot. And it's like an hour's flight back to the lodge, just looking everywhere, just yeah, in a zone from the day I'd had drinking cold Guinness. It was so cool, just taking it all in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was one of the best days fishing, I reckon. Um, I had another day. This is pre the show. I was down in, but when I think about good days fishing, um, I did quite a lot of billfish on fly and. Back in my sort of early and mid-20s, I was obviously doing a lot of articles and um, there was a guy called Joe Codd and he ran the Saltwood department for a travel company called Frontiers Travel, which back in the day was the world's biggest fly fishing travel network. It was Frontiers. I think they had offices in New York and London. Anyway, I became a bit of a overseas sort of correspondent for them and and saltwater fly orientated and they would send me to all these new destinations to sort of assess them and check them out um, or an existing one and write some articles and sort of evaluate them so here i am like a 23 year old and i was spending half of my and i did this for like 10 years um, and i'd spend about half of my year away at either a mothership or a fancy lodge you know writing articles and you know reporting and stuff like that so Anyway, long story short, I was down in Guatemala and I was I was at that Fins and Feathers Lodge. A uh, guy called Tim Choate owned that one. And I uh, went there two or three years in a row. But the first year I went there, um, I got to fish with all the really good captains like um, Brad and Ron Hamlin. You know, these guys are in the Hall of Fame for, for, um, for catching billfish in particular, but billfish on fly. Anyway... I think my first day, I'd never caught a billfish on fly, but been pretty obsessed about doing it. Caught a lot of other game fish on fly and some big yellowfin and things like that. Um, and then I might have got five or six sails the first day on fly, which for me was just the greatest. And then I think it was the second or third day I went out, the fish were on and 
I released, I was the single angler on the boat and I released 21 sailfish on flying one day, which at the time I think was a world, Bloody yeah, hell. and I think at the time it was like a world record, um, got beaten a year or so later and a few years after that got really beaten. But um, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It's certainly a, a good time in my life, you know, getting to travel to all these US locations because I did, I did do a lot of fishing through Central America, a lot of flats fishing and a lot of bill fishing, and only, only with the fly though. Were you mainly chasing sails over there, or were you also chasing blues? And oh, uh, back then the blue thing wasn't quite like it is these days with those fads at Costa Rica. Um, the odd blue would be around, but it wasn't yeah. like a a renowned fishery. I didn't feel, um, and I and I. I don't know if that's those. I'm pretty sure it would be those fads that they've created at Costa Rica. Um, I did fish for striped marlin um, at at uh, Baja in the Sea Cortez. I did, I think, three three trips there. Um, caught plenty of stripes on really basic tackle back then, and then tried on fly with those guys, but they were fairly primitive. To be fair, um, always wanted to get back there, but never never did that. But um, yeah. I and I did catch other fish conventionally throughout Central America, but only caught sails on fly. Yeah, okay. And there's definitely like there's places all over the world now where blue fish, like uh, blue marlin fisheries, have been established. Some of which are in Australia, and I guess um, over time, technique and different knots and different uh, ways to rig things. It's um, yeah, it's definitely something that's more more attainable these days. I guess. Yeah, know. for sure. Like if you're chasing a blue on fly these days, I think you're going to either um, uh, Costa Rica or you're fishing with Eddie over at Exmouth. You know, that's – and I've fished with Eddie yep. plenty of times and, you know, he's a, he's a legend, champion fisherman and, uh, yeah, just he's hardcore. Yep. He's a great bloke to talk to. I had him on a um, on a previous podcast episode and he's got such a good fishery over there. Like, it's incredible how close the um, – like the grounds are basically like you're not steaming far at all and they've got everything there. Like you've got your blacks, your stripes, your blues, your sailfish, um, just an incredible fishery. Yeah, and as a captain, no one works harder. Like, sorry, yeah, as a, as a captain, like no one works harder than Ed. You know, like you're, you're out there trying to, trying to switch a fish and the sun's gone down half an hour ago and it's dark. Yeah. And you're thinking, Ed, I can't even see the water now, let alone switching one. <laughs> but he's still out there, still in the grounds going for it. So, yeah, I don't think anyone works harder than him. Yeah, super keen. And he's got a really good team behind him as well. So like, teamwork's definitely a big part of billfish fishing. So um, I think Eddie's got the location, but he's also got the skills himself as well as the boys that are working with him too. Mm, for sure. You've also, um, some of your other travels throughout the States and that I really enjoyed one of the episodes you did where you got to um, drop into the Scott Fly Rod Factory with Jim Barchi and Jim's a bit of a genius when it comes to fly rods and that sort of thing. So that would have been a special moment for you. Yeah, that was pretty cool actually. We got to spend uh, about 10 days over there. Uh, I forget the, I forget where that, yep. um, I think it was Montrose where that factory is, I'm not sure. Um, I think that's the town we were staying and Jim, so we got 10 days over there and Jim would pick me and the cameraman up every day um, from the motel and, you know, we'd go and, go and get brekkie and then we'd go and do whether we were filming at the factory or going for a fish. It was unreal to spend that amount of time with Jimmy. Like the guy is a genius and um, on so many levels. And anyway, I remember this one day, that it was the first day at the factory and he, uh, he said, oh, 
you know, let's come out and have a cast out in the front yard and I'm thinking, oh, shit, this ain't going to be good, you know. <laughs> I've got to cast a fly with Jimmy. Anyway, um, we're casting along and I think I had an 8-weight in my hand at the time, would have been an S4S, and he said, right, oh, well, there's there's just one thing if, you, if you're really part of this team. He said, there's this tree and we're only about 50, 60 feet from it, pretty close, and it's got this sort of big sort of head or shrub over the top of it, but it's a thin little trunk, goes up about three feet, and then it has this little tiny fork that goes for another three feet. And so at the top of this V of this trunk, between the branches above it, there's about 12 inches width. And he said, right, if you're really part of this team, and my cameraman's there with me just having a cast as well, he said, if you're really part of this team, you've got three casts to get that fly line through that V. And I'm like, shit, I'm not going to get any of these through there. Anyway, I just looked and grinned at my cameraman thinking I've got no hope. And I just lined up the first one and sent it and she went straight through. And I handed in the rod and said, yeah, it's pretty easy, Jim. What do you got next? <laughs> so, <laughs> Bloody hell. Talk about no pressure at all. I thought I never I never want to. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I said I, I thought to myself I never want to have to do that again. But uh, I just, uh, yeah, it was all uh, all ass. It's um, it's definitely somewhere I'd love to drop in one day. I've got one of the um, Scott Sectors in an eight, which is just an incredible rod. And I've got a couple of weeks in Tassie booked in at the end of this year. So I'm going to try one of the um, new five-weight centrics. I'm looking forward to having a cast of that and getting a few nice browns. Yeah, I haven't cast a lot of different centric rods, but I've got I've only got one of them myself. But, man, that's a rod, hey? Like that um, – when the Radian came out, which was not long before I did that trip with Jimmy um, – so we did a lot of that stuff based on the production of the Radian. Um, it, it was just a, a rod that just blew everyone away because basically, you know, as Jimmy would say, it was fast with feel. So you had you had rod brands like Loomis that only built fast rods, and I was used to that. I was a I was a long casting guy. I was a saltwater fly fisherman, or I was an indicator nympha. So for me, long casting, powerful rods, fast actions—that was my thing. And eventually I became a dry fly fisherman and I was horrible at it early, but I learned to cast dry flies properly. But And then you had, you know, companies like Winston that made really nice presentation rods. But um, this rod, this Radian, when it came out, was the rod that you could cast your 100-foot line into a breeze, but then delicately present a dry fly. Now, it wasn't quite as good as a G-Series or a G2 or whatever it was at the time, but you know, it did everything really, really well. And the centric has taken that to another level. So I don't know how Jimmy does it. He's a genius. There's no question. But, um, and look, spending that time with him in the, uh, in the factory, you know, I got to see that firsthand, but I also got to see the level of detail and, and precision that those, everyone in that factory had. So if there was any blemishes, those rods went to the bin, you know, whereas one of the things that I, I pointed out in that show was, you know, Scott rods have always had this raw, unfinished look to them. They're not they're not sanded and they're not painted like another brand's every one of their rods are. And I said to him, Why? And he said, Well, that just hides mistakes. You can have a blemish and you can sand it and paint it. So there are no blemishes in Scott fly rods. And that's it. You you'd pick one up off the rack and aesthetically they're super pleasing. They use the best componentry, they cast ridiculously well. Like I got to fish a five weight radian when I was in New Zealand fishing um around Rotorua there with Yoshi. Um and that was a great rod. So I can't wait to pick up the centric yeah. and see where they've taken it from the radian. Yeah, yeah. And then actually now that I remember that trip uh to the to the 
uh, Montrose or Colorado was even better because uh, I don't know if you remember, you would no doubt remember it. There was a the, the probably the first of the cool fly fishing DVDs that ever ever came out it was called Running Down the Man. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yep, yep. Of course. I mean, it it was the start of it really. I think it was Felt Soul Media, um, and those boys were all local Colorado fellows and. Um, you know, that was with that guy, Frank Smedhurst, who was just a natural star. Now, turns out he was also a rep for Jimmy and Scott Flyrods. So after we'd done the couple of episodes with Jimmy, or I think it was the one episode with Jimmy, we went and did a couple with Frank. And one of them, getting back to the best days fishing that you ever had and what you think back in your life, this was definitely one of them. We did this uh, episode where he drove us up into the high country. This is Frank. And we then went and hiked up into the top of the Rocky Mountains and found this little meadow stream. And we were fishing uh, two weight glass fly rods, Scott, Scott rods, six foot long, for cutthroat trout and just dominated them, caught so many. And it was honestly one of the best days fishing I have ever had still to this day. And to do it with a guy that is so cool, like Frank, because Frank is the coolest guy. And uh, it was really, really special, to be honest. Yeah, the show's definitely opened up some um, some doors with brands and people and different fisheries and that sort of thing. And it was just evident while watching the show, like how passionate you were about it and liking people along the way in the journey with them and getting to share some really cool fisheries with some great people. Like some of my best trips have been with my mates and that sort of thing and might not necessarily be the best fishing on the day, but it's just the whole journey with them. And yeah, it is cool being able to look back on those stories and have a beer and just talk about it again. Hundred percent. That you know, that was the reason for the title, Adventure Angler, because you know, because I'd come from this writing background, I wanted to tell a story. I didn't want it to be, you know, twenty six minutes of fishing and ads where we just we were already on the scene catching fish. We had to you had to show the journey to get to the location because that's a storytelling, but that's part of what we do in fishing, right? Like we we travel to these cool places, and, and half the time it's that travel that's you know the big part of the story so that was that was the whole reason for the show that's one of those things like you you look at a magazine article or even a book and the ones that are i i caught a this fish on this rod in this and blah 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 and it's just me 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 i i i but when you have someone that can write like yourself or like um i love reading greg french's articles and books and that sort of thing where the whole thing it's about the whole journey it's not about yeah I, i'm using this expensive rod blah 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 um and it, it is just makes for much more enjoyable reading and like even with your show viewing just because it translates so much better. No, nothing gets lost in translation. Yeah, 100%. And there's always some, you know, cool stuff along the way. Like it wasn't a fly fishing yet, but we did this one to go and catch snapper in South Australia once and you're thinking, all right, well, how can I make that fun? You know, like how, how can you make that to be an exotic episode? So there are a couple of, you know, ideas. There's this place called the Great Ocean Road to be fair, I hadn't even been down and it's an iconic journey in Australia. So it's like, well, let's tow a boat from Melbourne to Adelaide via the Great Ocean Road, then get to the Coonawarra and go to one of the most iconic wineries they have there, do a winemaking tour, you know, a little private winemaking tour, uh, and then eventually get to get to Arno Bay, catch the shit out of some massive snapper on, on soft plastics, like 25-pound fish. And then we finish the episode diving with great white sharks just down the road at Port Lincoln. I mean, so something as subtle as Snapper can be pretty exotic if you can build some story into it. 
And that's it. We're so lucky in Australia to have some, well, such diverse landscapes. Like you can drive seven hours and be somewhere completely different. And it is such a vast continent. Like a lot of people overseas don't understand it. I remember when I was younger, we did a family trip to the UK and we stayed with a family in Ireland there at like a, a B&B. And they couldn't believe that the next day we were going to be driving five hours. They, they said, so where are you going to stay overnight in between that? I said, no, no, that's like, that's what we're doing tomorrow. Um, and like for us here in Australia, jumping in the car and driving anywhere up to sort of 12 hours in a day, it's pretty normal, hey? <laughs> yeah, it's just what we're used to, isn't it, really? Yeah. And you've got um, talking about road trips and that sort of thing in different landscapes. Dave Bradley's another name that... He always popped up in the series, whether you were chasing permit with him in Goldies and Barron, that sort of thing. How did you first meet Dave? Because he obviously, he up until recently, owned Australian Fly Fishing Outfitters there in Hinchinbrook and has one of the sort of premier guiding outfits in Australia. Um, how did that come about? Yeah, Dave and I have got a, another long relationship, pretty much like Renee, I guess. Um, Dave is, you know, today one of my best mates and has been ever since. Um, he... We, we were on this trip to Cape York and I was the designated fishing journal to get sent on it at the time. I think I might have been about 22 or something like that. And it was these filthy rich um, stockbrokers from, from New York and they were all coming out here to chase, well, a whole range of world records that were all open on fly, you know, like Queenfish and Goldens and all sorts of stuff. And they chartered Man Ray at the time as a mothership or to do the, the fishing and a whole heap of guides like Steve Jeston and Dave Bradley, uh, and I forget who else. And then they hired this massive mothership Mystique because Manta Ray wasn't luxurious enough. So they had to stay on Mystique that was parked out the front. And they and they chartered Brazaka, the, the legendary male fisherman who was now working full-time in helicopters because he flew, uh, flew choppers in Vietnam and then also started a chopper charter business and in Cairns, Cape York area. And so at the time, he had like seven choppers running in charter. Anyway, so he was there as the designated chopper guy um, to to basically entertain them. Whenever they wanted to go for a joy flight somewhere, they could just jump in the chopper. And he, he was a full-time booking. It was quite extraordinary. And then I was this fishing journal to cover the trip. But of course, they weren't interested in me. Like they wanted to just catch records and that was fine. So, so basically... I got to just go and fish on my own in the tender or with Brazaka, who was bored shitless, um, all day for 10 days. And then Dave Dave and I were starting to get along pretty good early in the trip. We worked out that we liked each other. And if his couple of clients wanted to rest for another or someone did, he would sort of say, all right, well, I won't go. And him and I would go fishing together. And we just hit it off, basically. So we'd catch, you know, Goldens on fly on one of the flats or something. I just remember this one session that was probably the one of the best and uh, and certainly one of our earliest. And we were standing in like uh, shin deep water at the mouth of I think the Doughboy River, both with an eight or nine weight in our hand. And these queenies were coming across this flat one after another, and they were pretty much like tarpon. Like we were saying, this has got to be like tarpon fishing is because neither of us had ever done it at this point. And these fish were like a metre 20 to a metre 45 long. Like they were serious queenies, 20, 25 pound fish. And they were just piling onto this flat. And we, every single one of them we presented to, we'd catch it. And these things were, you know, taking 100 metres of line and they were doing that kind of black marlin jump where they're greyhounding away from you and jumping. And 
we had like two hours of this just nonstop action together, just standing side by side. And I, it was probably that session, I reckon, that made a lifelong friendship. Um, and then since then, we've just kept in, in contact and we've travelled uh, a lot together, that's for sure. And, um, you know, helped each, helped each other a fair bit along the way. Like, I, I kind of believe that um, I, I certainly helped Dave's guiding business at the Hinchinbrook area, uh, guiding for permit a lot with the shows that I would do. But similarly, he was helping me because he was getting me on to some great fishing and he was making my show look good too. So as a partnership, I thought we were pretty strong, to be honest, and we really helped each other a lot. Um, but it probably it probably looked good on TV because we are just great mates. Like he's the best mate of mine and still is today. So um, I think when you've got those real friendships, they probably do show up on TV. And uh, like, yeah, we, we, we went fishing uh, all over the shop, really. Like we... We filmed for 100-plus pound tarpon together in the Florida Keys uh, and, and the Panhandle in Florida. Uh, we, we caught lots of permit together. I remember doing one episode with him where I caught three in three casts on camera. I thought that was a reasonable effort. Um, so, yeah, we've just, had some <laughs> we've just had some amazing days fishing, really. That whole Hinchinbrook area, like when you pull over on the highway and just have a look at the, the lookout there, it looks like it should be something out of Jurassic Park, like – the way that the um, the island comes out of the water there and just the landscape with all the rain, rainforest around that sort of thing. It's a, um, definitely a, a special place in the country and one of the premier sort of um, permit on the flats fisheries too. Um, he's got it pretty well dialed there and Rod and the boys now who have taken over. Um, the business is obviously in good hands and they've got some really good fishing like sight casting the barra and the snags and it, it's a pretty cool spot with just about everything on offer. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Rod will do a great job. Um, I mean, Dave's got big boots to fill. Dave was a sensational guide. I, I rated Dave as the best um, saltwater guide or even fly fishing guide in Australia. I got to fish with a lot, and I hope someone's not too offended there, but that's just the reality. Dave Bradley was just the best fly fishing guide I saw and certainly um, possibly the best saltwater fly guide I ever saw. Um, you know, his skills, poling a boat, were unbelievable he's just a natural fisherman but what a lot of guys didn't get to see because they didn't see dave fish and i certainly did was the way dave fishes is pretty extraordinary too so there's guys that cast well in the park and then they just turn to shit when there's a busting tuna in front of them um so that's just useless really then there's guys that um need to be led to where the fish are and that's okay um but some guys are just naturally good at finding fish. And then when they do, the way Dave Bradley actually presents a fly to a fish, the way he fishes the fly is really, really extraordinary, I reckon. He's got a pretty unique talent there. He makes he, he makes fish eat flies. Yeah, and I guess that comes down to time on the water, but also to all the effort that he put into going to the States and fishing with people like Harry Spear and some of the great of the um the game over there like you develop a, a professional set of skills yeah 100 percent um i mean he's he's certainly got to guide some really good uh anglers and ex-guides excuse me but also he's just got to fish with some fantastic fishermen particularly in the states like juro and um yeah a few of those other guys they're, they're really good fishermen you know with good fisheries and they understand them well so that certainly helped dave but i think dave's 
biggest skill as a guide, without question, is his joke telling. There's no doubt about it. He, <laughs> Dave Bradley or Disco, as I like to call him, uh, would have must have a million jokes. I have a catalogue of about three, and if I learn a new one, one of the other ones has to go out the window because I just cannot retain jokes. Whereas Dave, you're just sitting there on the boat talking, and you say spoon. He goes, oh, spoon, that reminds me of a joke. Well, there's no word that doesn't remind Dave Bradley of a joke. But I, uh, I often I, I label him as, uh, he calls himself Dave Dingo Bradley. I'm not sure where he got the dingo bit from, but uh, for me, it's Dave Disco Bradley. And the backstory on that one, which he's going to just hate me telling, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, suck shit, Dave. Um, it's basically, we were, <laughs> we were filming in the Bahamas. It was one of these, you know, yet another cool trip we got to do. And I'd, I'd been given by, you know, sponsorship, I'd been given this big 48-foot power catamaran by Sunsail uh, to go and do this cool episode cruising around the Bahamas. So I had my wife with me. Uh, I was pre-kids and Dave and, uh, you know, the camera crew were there. Anyway, we're all having a good time. And we we got to this bar this one afternoon. There was this bar, famous bar called Nippers, and they had this nipper juice. Anyway, it was this bar on the beach, and we pulled up in the in the catamaran, taking the little tender to shore. And uh, anyway, they said, whatever you do, you've got to have one of these nipper juices, but whatever you do, don't have a second one. Because they're just so they're just full of rum. Like there's like five different types of Caribbean rum, and and it's just all it is is a rum slushy. Anyway, I get to the third one, going these nipper juices are pretty good to be honest. They're pretty easy to drink, and everyone's like, "How many have you had?" I'm thinking, "Oh, I've had three, and I'm still going." So me and Dave smashed the nipper juice that night. Anyway, there's this dance floor on the next to the this little bar. It's a real casual little place, and then there's a pool next to the dance floor. And uh, all night, all you could see was Dave Bradley, who refuses to dance, couldn't get off the dance floor. And at one point, he was just dragging <laughs> people onto there. And then next minute, I just picked him up and put him in the pool. So he, um, then we started a pool party. So that was quite an exciting night, to be honest. But um, so that's how Dave got the Disco Bradley name, as far as I'm concerned. He likes to call himself Dingo, but it's Disco all the way. <laughs> And I guess for a man that's probably um, equal parts um, fisherman and rum, for, for him to be doing that sort of thing, it must have been a pretty good mixture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all had a good night. A good night was had at Nippers. <laughs> oh, well, hopefully it doesn't kill um, either you or I for airing that story, but I reckon it'll, um, it'll be a good one for other people. <laughs> yeah, no, it needs, to, it needs to be told for sure. <laughs> Very good. If you um, can't tell a good joke about your mates or a good story about your mates, I don't think you're that good a mate anyway. So Exactly. Have you had any um, trips where everything's gone like completely pear-shaped or any like issues overseas like security-wise or has it always been pretty smooth sailing? Um, yeah, I got pretty sick. Uh, I was filming in PNG and and I was staying at this lodge that was, well, pretty pretty average to be fair. Uh, and I got, I got pretty sick there, to be honest. I got a mosquito bite that then turned into uh, an infection because there was no air conditioning, or they'd turn the and they'd turn the fans off to save power, and it was it was actually pretty pretty disgusting the whole setup, really. So um, yeah, I got pretty sick on that one, um, but no, we we had pretty good luck. Um, might have had a few sort of hairy sort of little scenarios which we avoided. We were pretty, uh, we were pretty leery at the time as well. Like we didn't mind a drink, and we were young Aussie guys that certainly demonstrated that we liked to have a drink. 
Um, so we, you know, I, we didn't seem to get into too much trouble. Um, the one time that it was quite funny is uh, we were doing, and I think it was on one of Dave Bradley's trips as well. We we're doing a trip in the US, and it was this Bahamas, Florida Keys trip. And so we'd flown in from Sydney to LA, and then we had to fly across to a place called Panama City in Florida. And I was really busy at the time, and I remember getting my wife to book all of the flights. And I was I was fairly well travelled, and I said, just remember, there's two Panama cities. There's one down in Panama, and then there's one which I'd been to, and then there's one in, the one we're trying to get to is in Florida. Anyway, we got to we got to LA and just had this uh, massive night on the source, and it was just one of those uh, ball terrors that you just sometimes have. And uh, the next day, we, all we had to do was fly across to Panama City. And uh, so we all took it pretty easy. We got to, to LAX airport there and we're all in fairly average condition. And we get, to the, we get to the gate and we're about to board. And I just remember the air hostess yelling out, oh, everyone just get out their passports. And I went, that's really odd that they're asking for passports. You know, like we're, we're just flying within the States here. And I just, I was so hungover at the time. And I just remember going, Oh no! And I just got this cold flush went over me, and I said, "Is this going to Panama City, Panama, or is this going to Panama City, US?" And she went, "No, it's going to Panama." And I went, "Oh, we've got a problem." <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so so yeah, there was a bit of a blow up from from them, and uh, but everything got resolved, and and uh, they just sorted everything out for us, changed it all pretty easily, and uh, we ended up having to spend a night in Dallas Airport. And me and Dave went down to the big Bass Pro there for the first time, and we're in awe of what a Bass Pro shop looks like, especially in Dallas. And uh, and it was, and then got to Panama City, the right one, the next day. So that was probably about as close a, a bad experience as we've had. It's probably um, good that you found out before you got onto the plane, as opposed to hitting the tarmac when you landed. <laughs> yeah, it could have been ugly. And since you've um, since you've wrapped up filming the Adventure Angler, if you were to come back in some sort of capacity, whether it be on like a streaming platform or YouTube and that sort of thing, are there any locations like around the world or Australia that you really wish you did in the original series, or have, do you think you've covered a fair bit of it and it's just places you'd like to go back to again? Um, there's never enough, really, is there? You know, like you've never travelled enough or caught enough fish. Um, there's not a lot of fishing that I am busting to do that I haven't done. Um, however, there are a few things, and I did have ideas of doing a, a second TV series that was more of a higher-end, longer version, telling way way more story than just fishing. Um, and I really and it would be fly only, to be honest. Um, and I, I'd actually written scripts for that for a season as well so i just don't think it's really too commercially viable but i think it would be exactly what we would all want to watch uh unfortunately but um a couple of the destinations in that would be and the things that i would want to tick off would be i never got to catch golden dorado in bolivia in those jungle streams i think that's got to be one of the coolest experiences i mean essentially that's just walking up a trout stream with a fly rod but you're catching 30-pound hyper-aggressive trout. I mean, that looks way cool, to be honest. Um, and I, I never got to travel to Europe. Like, I got to travel through Africa and, and you know, catch tiger fish and things like that, which was really cool. But I never, ever did Europe. 
Um, so, and I don't have a whole heap of interest in Europe, essentially, apart from places like Russia, um, Ireland, Scotland, Iceland, Finland, all that sort of stuff. So I, I would love to go and, you know, spay cast on, you know, on the Spay River, for example. Um, I'd love to do some, some really cool salmon fishing through, you know, Russia and, you know, all those rivers up the top there, Norway. Um, so that looks really cool. And there's that nice lake trout fishing up in, I think it's Iceland. That looks really cool. So I've got some, got some definite motivation to catching trout and salmon in Northern Europe. Um, I did plenty of fishing through Central America, but I really feel like America's fishing is just so well suited to fly fishing and I love every bit of it. Um, so of course I'd love to do more in America and certainly a bit of a, uh, road trip through that sort of Idaho, Montana, um, area would be pretty cool. They've got some really nice spring Creek fishing that I'm kind of used to, um, that would be nice to do there as well. Um, and whilst I fished pretty much, you know, not everything, but certainly a, a lot of Australia, it's just such an amazing country and there's so much more that you'd want to do again. Like I say to a lot of my friends, if I could go on one trip tomorrow, the one trip that I really miss doing, and I used to do several of them a year, um, would be Cape York Mothership. Like that is the best weeks fly fishing in Australia, really, without yeah. question. And I really miss those trips, to be honest. So yeah, there's there's lots of fishing I want to do. And of course, um, you know, it's nearly all fly fishing for me. That's what I want to do. Um, and it's probably these days largely based around trout, flats, or game. That's really what it is. And that's um, it would be interesting to see if you did have another show come back that just focused on what you're purely interested in and justify side of things. And I know how hard it is to be able to justify that with networks and commitments and that sort of thing because, let's face it, it's a fairly small industry compared to the fishing industry in general. Um, but I think there's definitely a market for it because, as you said, like everyone's trying to do everything or they're just plugging the hell out of products. So it would be quite refreshing to see something that's just more about going into detail of the trip and the prep and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I'm hoping that comes to fruition one day. It'd be quite a good watch. Yeah, well, if I was ever going to make a comeback, it would be for re like selfish reasons of doing what I want to do, you know, and, and that would be what I'd want to do. It would be with a fly rod in hand telling a great story. Yeah. And now that you've finished up um, for the time being with all your recording and that sort of thing and filming, what are you doing with yourself these days, both work-wise? And I know you recently got a, a new boat as well, so the offshore thing's going to be um, definitely on the cards for you these days. Yeah, so, um, you know, my dad told me when I was uh, 15 or 16 that, you know, son, getting a trade behind you will be a pretty good thing, uh, which is why I did that instead of the journalism. So I, I today have a building company uh, that's doing reasonably well and it's uh, it, and I really enjoy it as well. I, I enjoy working with my hands. So um, that's what I do for most of the time. I still have some, some roles in fishing as well. Um, and I, yeah, so I bought a, uh, a 28 Albemarle Express uh, with a nice little tower on it and that's moored here in Rimbula Lake and I get to use it pretty much every week. I'm pretty motivated about catching marlin. That's kind of what I'm into and swordfish, daytime sword fishing, um, tuna to a lesser extent, but for it's only two seasons old for me. So uh, I'm doing quite a lot of that these days. Uh, 
of course, I've spent a lot of time in the snow in the winter, and I've got a I've got a house up in the in the snowies up at Crackenback, or near Threadbow there. So I do spend a lot of time up there fly fishing. So I really, my passions at the moment are probably fly, dry fly fishing for trout. I'm, I've become very much a uh, one of those stuck up purists, and uh, I don't even I don't even have <laughs> nymphs in my box for most part of the season. Um, I just take them out, which is just. Story, just a storage issue, really. Um, so, and then catching marlin, they're kind of my two things at the moment. Have you had much to do with um, Matt Trippett there up at um, Krakenback and that sort of thing with the fly program? And Yeah, I have. Uh, Matty's a, a good a good mate and a good bloke. Um, he's doing a good thing there with that, that program. And I actually went uh, on one of those programs, uh, I'm going to say about three years ago, something like that, three and a half years ago. Um, and yeah, it was a it was a pretty awesome experience, actually. Definitely something good that he's doing for the fly fishing community and just the community in general. Like mental health is such a big issue these days. And I know he was the um, first person I inter- uh, interviewed on this podcast, and the response was really good. Like I had people uh, phone calls, like emails, all that sort of thing, messages on Facebook saying like how much they enjoyed it, and it was good to hear someone talking about it and bringing it up. And even guys that said they'd love to book in and do one of those retreats. Um, so I think he is doing a great job and it's just getting blokes together and opening up about um, a pretty big issue in Australia and around the world. Yeah, I think um, the more uh, blokes talk, the better, you know. We're, that's that's essentially been the problem. We historically weren't talking, you know, so the more we talk, the better. And now that you've got the album aisle as well, um, are you going to try for a, a sword on fly? I know like a few guys in America and that do it, it'd be a pretty big task. Like I know conventionally they're pretty hard to get, but... Is it something you've considered? Not really. Um, I think it would be amazingly difficult to do here. Uh, I, I know that there's some places in the States where those fish get, get up and feed on the surface. Uh, and I don't know much about sword fishing on fly or you know how many have been caught. I, I believe it wouldn't be too many. Um, no, I believe it's a small number, but I, it's just a couple of dedicated guys that are, um, yeah, I think they've cracked a little bit of a pattern, but... Yeah, yeah. And it would most likely be guys that have caught all the other billfish species, which was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to try and, you know, catch all of the uh, billfish species. So um, on fly, that is. Um, but yeah, no, I, the main thing for getting the boat was to catch some sorts just on conventional um, and to try and get striped marlin on fly because we do have a good striped marlin fishery here, uh, Marimbula and Bermagui. And it's just that we haven't had two great seasons, to be fair. The two seasons I've had the boat haven't been amazing. We've had some good days out there. And if if you're out there set up to fly fish every day, you'd have some pretty long days. But there would have been a couple of really good opportunities in there for sure. Uh, but, you know, with, with a new crew and a new boat, we're, we're also pretty motivated just to get plenty of nice, you know, billfish anyway. And we do it all with bait and switch. So... It's a pretty exciting way to fish. You know, I'm in the tower just teasing them in, and uh, frankly, I'm enjoying that. It is good fun. Like I'm looking forward to doing more of that this season here with the little juvenile blacks up the top of Fraser there around Rooney's. And um, Dane, one of my mates I work with at the shop, he does a fair bit of heavy tackle fishing, just trolling for blues and blacks. And um, I'm looking forward to doing more of that. We just haven't had the weather to do it this year. It's been a pretty horrendous start to the year. We've had a few small windows, but um, as a whole, we've had a lot of bad weather compared to good weather. Yeah, I think that's the whole East Coast, right? Like we've just had a, a horrible season. It's just 
the op, like the the fish haven't been fantastic this season either, but certainly the weather has been uh, hideous. So, yeah, I think that's a, an East Coast issue for this year, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm hoping we have a pretty good pelagic season later in the year just because we have had so much rain early on and for years we had sort of drought or like um, only a little bit of rain. So it's good to see that all the major systems here got a flush and there's been plenty of bait. Like it's probably been one of the better snapper seasons we've had in years here. And I'm just hoping the fact that there's been plenty of school mackerel around the tuna season was pretty good. I'm hoping for everything else that all comes together. Yeah, exactly. Always greener pastures. That's it. Well, I think we might wrap things up, Mike. I think we've ca- uh, covered quite a bit in this interview. Was there anything you wanted to add add before we do? Or? Um, no, not really, Josh. I mean, it's just uh, I just, uh, you know, I'm looking back, I guess, at a, a fishing career that I'm pretty thankful for, really. Like, I, I, you know, through my work, I've been able to travel to, like, 25 countries around the world and, and fly fish them all, and um, I think that in itself is just an amazing opportunity and you know it was something that I said to myself and to people that asked from the age of about 12 that I was going to work in the fishing industry this is what I was going to do so you don't need a dad that's in the industry and is going to give you a a pathway you don't need any amazing breaks you just need work ethic and, and to believe in it you know so I've had this amazing life and opportunity, but it was just just on the back of working hard and desire. Yeah, and I guess it's one of those things, if you're willing to put in the effort and networking, that sort of thing, and spending time on the water, um, you can do it if, you, if you're willing to put in the time and the effort. Yeah, 100%, mate. And if people want to keep up with what you're doing, um, is it just Instagram or Facebook? What's the best way to have a look at what you've been up to fishing-wise? Um, I'm kind of aloof these days. Like, I'm not on Instagram at all, which makes me a dinosaur, I believe. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so certainly not on TikTok or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I do I, I do have a Facebook uh, page, Adventure Angler, but I don't even monitor it. Uh, it's really just my own personal one that I bother with these days. And, and like I say, you know, all my mates are in my phone, uh, as as they should be. Um, so yeah, really, just Facebook is probably the best way to connect. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a little old school, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh well. Hopefully, in the future, if you do decide to do some more episodes and that sort of thing, I can um, I'll pop it up there for people to have a look at. And yeah, I'd be really interested to see that because it'd be interesting to see what you could do second time around after knowing what you know from being in the industry for so long and. And just focusing on your passion. Yeah, I'd certainly love to produce that series, I must say. Oh, we might have to um, jump up and down with a few companies and that and make it happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, start beating the drum. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'll, yeah. I just want to thank you again for coming on, Mike. I know you're a busy bloke with family and work and trying to get out for a fish or a hunt and that sort of thing. And I really do appreciate you making the time. I think a lot of people enjoy your story. And I know plenty of young fellas like mates, mates of mine that's thing that love the TV show and um Lots of guys I know that used to keep up with your articles. So, yeah, thanks again for coming on. And, yeah, I look forward to talking to you next time. No worries, Josh, and uh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Micah. No worries. See you, mate.